Welcome to the Vine Podcast. This is Warren, and today I am joined once again by Dr. Jason Martin. Good morning, Jason. How are you? Hey, Warren. Uh, I'm doing good. It's uh, a busy week, but I'm glad we could uh, find some time to to talk a little bit. That's right. Yeah, and we're also joined once again, welcoming back to the pod today. A friend of the pod and friend of the vine, I think we can say, Dr. Jude Austin. So, hello, Jude, and welcome back. Thanks for having me, man. I'm I'm excited to be back. I'm excited to be called a friend. You know. <laughs> yeah, well, I think you. I think last time you came on, it was you had been on the pod multiple times. So you you yeah. you, you went to friend of the vo- friend of the pod status, but now you've preached for us I've as preached, well. So so That's, you're now you've yeah, been I'm elevated again. Family. Yeah, basically, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're like a, a cousin of, of the vine yeah, or like something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, so so Jason and Jude are both um, I, counselors. I can say that, uh, right? Yeah. And there are a lot of different yeah. titles you could give us. I say a lot, a lot of different titles. Both yeah. both are doctors and very very well educated and learned and. Um, have have a lot of just um, great thoughts on a number of topics. And so Jason and Jude are here today to help us think about attachment theory. And we're going to talk about attachment theory and how a person's attachment style may impact not only how we connect to each other and to other people, but but could it even have an impact on how we relate to God, how we connect with God, maybe even how we view God. And so if you're thinking, I don't even know what attachment theory is, that's where we're going to kind of start just in a minute. We'll give kind of a brief overview of it. But this is a topic that just the, the idea of attachment theory is something I kind of became interested in when my wife and I went through training for uh, foster care. And so, you know, if you're going to go through training for foster care, obviously, you know, any kid who comes into the foster care system has been through some type of trauma. And so there's a lot to learn about trauma-informed care and, and other topics, one of which is attachment theory and attachment styles and how that may impact a child's connection to whoever their caregiver is. And, and so that kind of began sort of my interest in, in this topic. And then there was actually a comment that Jude had made last time, and I could have gone back and done the deep research to see what exactly this comment was. I didn't do that, but it has stuck with me because there was something that, that Jude, you had said about attachment style and kind of our connection with God. And, and really ever since then, I thought we need to come back to that in, in a podcast episode and explore that a little bit. So, so that's what we're going to do today. And so to, to get started with that, I, w- I want to just kind of hear from, from one or both of you, maybe, maybe y'all can help us go and just do kind of a brief overview of what is attachment theory. Let's just start there. Ooh, it's a great question. Jason, do you want to take it? I have some thoughts. Uh, why don't you go, go first? I have some thoughts as well, but I, I want to, I want to, you may say what I was thinking. Go ahead. Okay. So I, so I like to think of theory just in general, as somebody trying to make sense of reality, right? Somebody trying to make sense of what's going on in front of us, right? And so to me, the theory is that each person has something or someone that they're attached to, a primary caregiver. They could be healthy, unhealthy, mixture of the two, whatever, right? But the idea was that that attachment, the attachment we form, towards that person, right, will then 
ultimately impact how we think, feel, and act in other relationships. It kind of starts a pattern, right? Um, and so the theory is that that attachment will mimic itself or mirror itself or parallel itself throughout each of our relationships. That's that's my thought, my idea. What do you what do you think, Jason? Does that make sense? Yeah, I. <clears throat> well, as as Jude was saying, theory is a way of understanding. And so it's not necessarily universal. If it was universal, it would be, uh, you know, like a law of physics or something. Um, and so, but it is, it is applicable more often than random. Uh, it's, it's applicable more often than um, just guesses as to what's going to happen. And so the way that applies to attachment theory is that we've learned through research, but I think you can see this just in anecdotal observation as well, that children from a very, very young age, maybe even beginning in utero, but certainly in infancy, uh, begin to develop these, um, <clears throat> well, they begin learning lessons about safety and about security. And, um, and those lessons teach them what, who am I and what is my value and what is the world around me and how safe is it? And so everybody develops a, well, in, the, in this theory, everyone develops an attachment style uh, in childhood. And for some, that may be a very secure attachment. If your parent or primary caregiver was available and safe without being hovering and 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 smothering um that that children will naturally look for ways to uh to explore their world to learn about themselves to learn about their their world but always with the safe home base of you know the primary caregiver and when that is disrupted or or when that occurs in a problematic or traumatic manner that creates problems later on for feelings of safety, security, and um, just just a person's ability to um, to trust other people, but also to trust themselves. And so, what you end up with are what researchers have kind of determined to be these uh, four primary attachment styles. Only one of which is really considered to be healthy, and that's that's known as secure uh, secure attachment, and. Uh, the others are some variation of of um, ways of keeping the self safe. And when I say safe, I don't just mean physical safety, although that can come into play, but more more commonly emotional uh, emotional safety. And um, and so you end up with uh, anxious attachment or avoidant attachment or um, what's called disorganized or chaotic attachment. Um, and so all of those attachment styles, um, you know, kind of manifest themselves in our relationships as we get older with, uh, in a lot of different relationships, it can manifest itself and, and create issues in our relationships with our partners, with our children, with our parents, with our friends, with our coworkers. And a lot of the work, honestly, I think a lot of the work of therapy 
is kind of working through that. Because the reality is, while we could identify that, you know, I think I've seen some research that says about 58%, so just a little bit more than half of all adults have a secure attachment. Well, that means that 42% do not, <laughs> you know, and and so a lot of the work of therapy is helping, first of all, helping that 42% become more securely attached in a healthy way, and also helping that 58% who may already be securely attached kind of work through some ways in which they may not be secure. So it's not like a it's not like a, a clean bucket that you can put yourself into. It's kind of like on a spectrum, you know? So even people who may be unhealthy, who may be relatively healthy, relatively secure attached, may have some insecurities, may have some anxieties Absolutely. that pop up periodically. Sorry, go ahead, Jude. No, I was going to say, like, it's not a death sentence, you know? It's not like etched in stone, you know? Like, oh my gosh, I'm anxiously attached and abandon all hope. Like, that's not, you know, I think I've read a couple of things that said, you know, probably about every five or so years, you know, you've gone through life experiences enough to pull you into security, right? Or to push you further into your anxiety. And oftentimes, um, our significant relationships are the things that can pull us from one direction or not, you know? And so, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, Jason, but you only really need one well differentiated person in a relationship for the relationship to have the potential to be successful you know meaning you only really need one person who's securely in the relationship and that person can help pull the other person into security you know from anxiety or into security from avoidant you know that person is willing and insightful and aware enough to budge you know but it's when you kind of get rooted in there and it becomes, it goes from being a uh, attachment style to a personality trait. Then it starts to, you know what I mean? Because you, you haven't done the work, the insight to, to grab a hold of it, you know. Yeah. It's when you're unaware of it that I feel like it could, it could start to be dangerous. Well, that's, I mean, that's the truth, I think, for all mental and emotional parts of ourself is that what we are unaware of, what we don't seek out or what we refuse to confront, that's what damages us. That's what creates unhealthy patterns. And, you know, one one point of, of clarification I might add to what you just said, Jude, um, you know, you said that it takes, you know, it only takes one individual who's, you know, relatively well differentiated. The reality is, and, and research kind of bears this out, that people of similar levels of differentiation tend to attract to each other. And so sometimes it's a matter of, of maybe neither are, you know, in some, you know, to whatever degree this can be objectively defined, uh, well differentiated, maybe neither is, but they have their own strengths within differentiation. They have their own ability to self-soothe and soothe their partner and if each if they are willing to be influenced by the other, if they're willing to kind of lean on the other in important times, but also allow themselves to uh, to be leaned on by their partner, then they can both kind of raise each other up. 
Um, and that's kind of, that's, that's beautiful when that happens. And I've seen that, you know, I do a lot of couples therapy and I've seen that so many times with couples who come in and it's just like, these are two very insecurely attached individual individuals, very low differentiated, but somehow they're able to trust each other enough that they can lean on each other to kind of pull each other up and do some, not just good relational work, but good individual work within the relational context. Yeah, man. And the other person gets to witness it. Mm-hmm. You know, the other person gets to, like if, if I'm in a relationship with someone and I, maybe I experience myself as secure, but my partner is anxious, right? If if they can see it, if they have awareness, and then I get to watch them do the work, it not only builds, you know, some, you know, relational kind of binding, but it also allows me to trust that this person can do the work whenever they get stuck in anxiety. You know, you start to trust not just that person, you start to trust their development. You know, you can say, I trust who you're going to be five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now. And I think that creates some buy-in in the relationship. You know, if you can watch your partner go, oh, I'm being anxious, let me pull myself out of it. You know, and I, if I can trust my partner to do that, then, you know, what do I sign? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's where that's where problematic attachment comes into play because it it is an indelible and very over overriding message that other people are not trustworthy, that other people, and, and also that I'm not trustworthy. So not only are other people not trustworthy, but I can't trust my own judgment. I can't trust my own feelings. And there's danger in not only what I don't like and what I don't want, but there's also danger in what I do want because mm-hmm. I can't trust that what I do want is good. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we could talk yeah. about this forever. Well, Question so, so as y'all have said, <laughs> as y'all have said, there's, there's kind of four primary styles of attachment. And so for our purposes today, we're not going to necessarily kind of go through and break each of those down. But, but Jason, maybe we can post kind of a link. If people are interested in that, maybe we could post kind of a link to where you could go and, and read some more about that. But I want to think kind of for a minute, because both of you have kind of talked about this, the importance of awareness, becoming aware of, of my attachment style, and, and then being you know willing to do some work on that perhaps, especially if I'm not someone who has a secure attachment style, I've, I've got to do some work to figure out, okay, how can I, uh, how can I be more secure in my, in my attachments, my relationships with, with others. But I imagine that this is different than something like that, you know, cause I think whatever, whatever it comes to like personality type test or strength test, we want to know, well, where's the tool or the test I can take in order to figure out, you know, what, whatever this kind of personality metric is. But, but when it comes to attachment style, I'm guessing it, it's different that there's not necessarily like a test that I can go take or, or is there or, or what, what's the best way to sort of figure out where I'm currently at in my kind of attachment style? Is, is therapy the, the best way to do that? Or are there other things I can kind of do? What, what should a person do to kind of become aware of, of, what I guess would be their what default attachment style. I don't know what the correct language is there, but what do you yeah. think? 
homeo, homeostatic you just pattern. Asked, you just asked two therapists if therapy is the best way to to learn something. I just put and it so, on a T. I just put it yeah. on a T there for Are you. Are we going to say anything other do than... Is, all you've got to yeah. do is swing the bat. Call your local therapist. Dude. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I think... Okay, so there are... I think there are several different ways of doing that. First off, I think there is some assessments out there, you know, that can at least point you in the right direction, you know, of of what's going on, you know, uh, which attachment style you lean most closely to. Um, I think you can start now, right? Like you can start thinking about how you feel, right? Like I, I usually tell students when I'm teaching this, it's like, imagine that your primary caregivers, parents, grandparents, whoever was on a big boat. And you're in the little boat and there's a little line attached to that big boat from that big boat to your little boat. Right now, as you're like floating around the ocean, if you're looking back at that big boat and worried if they're still attached to you, you're probably anxious. You know, if you are in that boat and you're not looking back at all because, you know, nobody's going to come and help me, even if I get in trouble, you're probably avoidant, you know. If you have equal bits where you're kind of looking back and checking, okay, you guys good, I'm good, and you're trusting enough to explore it, you're probably secure. And that is like anecdotal, just little stuff that you can do just sitting at your kitchen table without having to pay for an assessment, you know? Um, So there are some, you know, you can even explore it in your own relationships. Like if you have a close enough friend, you know, I would suggest going up to them and asking them, how do you experience me in a relationship? You know, but you got to have somebody Ooh, that you that's trust. A, to, I know, I know. That's man. a that's a vulnerable question. It's a vulnerable question, man. Don't ask. I ask my brother all the time, and uh, he's not kind. My brother, no. <laughs> I love yeah, my brother. A sibling may not be the one you want to. Sibling ask may to. not be the. <laughs> a parent may not be the best. You know, even a even a partner, you know, may not be the best person. But you know, you have people around you who could tell you, like, eh, you're a little bit anxious. You know, like, you know what I mean. Um, So, yeah, but therapy is definitely, you know, the because these these attachment styles, they don't happen in a vacuum. You know, it's not just like you sitting in your living room anxious, like it is a relational kind of thing, you know. And so one of the good things that therapy does is that it puts you in a room and it puts you in a relationship hopefully with somebody who's differentiated enough to go, hey, do you know, like when you do this, this is how I experience you or this is how, you know, you come across or, you know, where you can get some feedback or a mirror held up um, to you. So, yeah, it, it's an assessment will work, but it's the relationship that I think is is uh, is changing. And, and even in some cases, corrective, you know, like or, or uh, corrective emotionally, you know, you get a you get to taste trustworthiness, you know, in a way that's safe um, or feel feel uncomfortable or feel threatened even, but in a way that's safe. You know? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm curious because so it's, it's, especially as we keep talking about because you're talking about this kind of anxiousness coming up in relationships. And, you know, so our our uh, our church has done a lot of Enneagram stuff in the past, and I know there are some numbers in the Enneagram, specifically like a six in the Enneagram, that, that has a lot of fear and kind of anxiety oftentimes connected to it. Are those things connected, like how a person just kind of experiences anxiety 
in in life is that connected to attachment style yeah i mean i think the theory and tell me if i'm wrong jason but i feel like the theory um it it has a perspective that yeah a lot of our diagnosable issues can be related back to these attachments you know um if you need something from your parents or if you need something from your caregiver and you don't get it you can experience that as anxiety throughout your life and you can be anxiously looking and wanting for that thing if you don't get that thing fast enough or enough that can lead you towards depression you know because you're just not getting what you need over a long period of time you know and oftentimes it's not the thing that causes the diagnosable problem but it's our creative solutions to those things that cause the, uh, you know what I mean? So it's like, I'm not getting Because we start building kind of unhealthy exactly. ways of doing, of, of, doing, of seeking the things. Exactly. And that's where problems come. That's where problems yeah, come. A lot of diagnosis yeah. really, I think, can be better understood as, as problematic ways of getting our needs met. Uh, and and maybe and sometimes they were effective and healthy ways that became problematic over time, but a lot of mental health diagnoses can really be seen as unhealthy ways of attempting to get our our needs met. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of these needs come from our attachment needs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whenever we say needs in this context, we're almost always are talking about attachment needs. Almost always we're talking about, um, you know, needs of connection, needs of empathy, needs of um, affection and reassurance, those kinds of needs. Validation. And people, people will oftentimes choose misery at their best attempt at getting their needs met. Like they will most oftentimes choose misery at their best attempt, you know, and you're asking them, why are you doing, just stop it, you know, but that's the first thing I say in therapy, just stop, uh, but it's, it's, is that effective? It's, <laughs> it's been working, no. <laughs> people why do you think to, that is, why people, do we, why do we turn to misery? <laughs> I don't know, man, I think it's because sometimes we, we don't even know we're miserable, you know, like the, the, the patterns, that we find ourselves in, the choices we make, can feel so comfortable that we don't even know it's dysfunctional. And sometimes when you are in function, like when you're in a healthy relationship, that feels dysfunctional. You know, when you, when you, it's, it's just like our relationship with God, I know we're going to get to it. But sometimes when somebody just says, no, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere. Like, I'll love you forever. I'm not going anywhere. That can be the most terrifying thing ever, you know, because you start to think, well, I'm going to mess it up. Well, I'm going, it's going to be me. You know what I mean? It's, it's just, it's just way more nebulous than, oh, I'm getting what I need. I'll sleep, sleep tight. Like, no, it's not, it's not that at all. It's, you start it's worry. Any kind of, for someone who has not had very good attachment experiences, especially if they've experienced trauma, the idea of of like a secure attachment or a healthy relationship is so foreign to them and so difficult to accept or grasp that it's it's like well i you know if i'm in a bad situation 
I I may think, yeah, I'm miserable, I'm anxious, I'm, you know, in this dysfunctional uh, place, but I know it. I'm used to it. I understand it. And so the, the phrase that comes to my mind is, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. And so if I make a change, I have this promise or, you know, people are telling me that things will be better and maybe I can see the logic to that, but I don't know that for sure. And like Jude says, you know, I may mess things up. You know, other people don't know how much of a screw up I am. People, other people may not necessarily, you know, maybe I'm, I'm a fraud and uh, I'm not really as capable as they're giving me credit for. And so I'm just going to choose misery because uh, I don't want to take the chance that trying something else as, you know, po- possibly, re- uh, re- you know, reparative as it might be, is going to be even worse than the misery I'm experiencing now. And and then, and even then, it may be even worse because I've given it a try. I've actually put forth the effort. It I messed it up. And so now I have the proof of how miserable of a human being I actually am. It's not just hypothetical. And so that fear keeps us where we are. And the, and the same could be said for success, you know, like for, for, you know, if you are, so like a common thing that happens in couples, right, is you have somebody with an anxious attachment style and they usually will date and marry somebody with an avoidant attachment style, right? Because the patterns are so familiar. You know, if I'm anxious and I have to chase somebody, I grew up doing that. Like, that's that's my safe, that's my blanket, you know? And if I'm avoidant and somebody's chasing me, that's exactly, that feels right. And it's perfectly balanced and completely mm. unhealthy. <laughs> yeah, but perfectly balanced. So, you know, so we've all got work to do. We've all, got, yes. <laughs> we're all, I think that was, you know, we could keep talking about a lot of this. I do want to move to some of the spiritual stuff though, but I think that was the most, one of the most, um, I don't know, surprising or interesting things I think, cause like I that I learned, as I said, when, when I started to become kind of aware of this and in, in some of the training that we were doing, just how much of this, um, our, our patterns, I think you use that word a couple times, Jude, patterns that are really established from when we are infants. And, and I think part of it is that like, in some ways I think that's frustrating or, or maybe even a little scary that like, these are things that I had literally no control over as an infant that are now patterns that are established. Um, but then it's like how it's, it's on us though, to take responsibility for ourselves at some point. Right. And, and oh, so, for sure. Um, I've, you know, and I've got a lot of other thoughts and questions there around parenting and how we go about figuring out some of this stuff. And cause that, cause then that would, when I learned this, I was like, man, so I've already screwed up both of my kids then, right? Like I don't have any chance to fix this, but. <laughs> well, actually I would agree with that first statement. You have indeed already screwed up your kids as all of us as parents have right, by yeah. now. However, but you not, can fix it. Yes, yes, it can. It can be. And helped. I think that's the yeah. That's that's the that's the helpful thing to know is that whether it's for yourself or your interactions with others, when when we work on these things with 
for ourselves, uh, about ourselves, it does impact not only us, but those who we're in relationship with. And, and yeah, I have seen, you know, there, there are several ways, yeah, like you said, Jason, that we've all messed up our kids. But it was interesting to me that I would notice, because uh, like, you know, Banner, I would notice that Banner, when we're at a playground or something, he's able to go play independently. And then he'll come do the check-in every once in a while, you know? Okay, you're still here. And then go back and play independently. And I was like, okay, that's a good sign. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't totally it's ruined a great him. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, we could do a lot of other stuff there. But I do want to talk about the spiritual aspect of this uh, for a while. Uh, so, so I'm just curious to hear y'all kind of speak about, because we, we know how this impacts our relationships with others. From a Christian standpoint, um, how could a pers- person's attachment style impact how they connect to or see God? Like, would it be just obviously very similar that if I'm, I'm anxious in my attachments to other people, that, that I'm going to tend toward having some anxiousness in the way that I see God or relate to God? Or, or what, do y'all, what do y'all think about that? Well, I think some of it goes back to the fact that, you know, we refer to God as the Father so often. And so there is a, a parallel that a lot of us have in our minds, whether we, you know, necessarily, in, uh, you know, like this comparison or not, but we, we compare God to a parental figure, which I think sometimes is problematic, but most of the time I think is a, probably a fair and apt uh, metaphor for God. Um, and so I think as we, you know, as we were talking about with attachment early in life, attachment has to do with the safety, the security, the, uh, the, the helpfulness of our primary caregivers. And so as we develop this attachment style to those primary caregivers, I th- it, it then gets um, applied to the other people that we depend on throughout our life, um, such as our spouse, primarily, but I think God also would fall into that category that as, as we, you know, talk about God, even if we didn't use the word father to refer to God, we do refer to God as an entity that we, uh, that we rely on, that we depend on, that is responsible for our, our well-being in many regards. And so those, the attachment style that we um, develop is necessarily, I, I think, almost unavoidably going to apl- apply to God. And we may read all sorts of things in the Bible about the nature of God, about the love and grace and forgiveness of God. But if we have a problematic attachment, then we're always going to struggle with that, either struggle to really accept it or struggle even to read it and interpret it in a loving and caring way. Yeah, man. Yeah, I think, you know, to piggyback off of that, I think the work comes comes where you figure out your relationship to the ideal of father. Right. The ideal of um, of a shepherd. Right. The ideal of being led. Like, what's your relationship to those ideals? Because I think that that kind of stuff will impact how you see God, you know? I think, honestly, like, as a dad of two and a half boys, my wife is due literally any day now. Um, We have three boys, 
you know, I feel this pressure and it's a motivating, striving kind of pressure, right, to build a relationship with them that I want to see paralleled in their relationship with God. You know, like I'm, I, in some way, I feel a sense of responsibility to, to treat them as if God was sitting in front of me. You know, be in awe of them and be curious and be humbled by them and, but also teach them to do those things with other people, you know, including God. And I think sometimes, sometimes it's safer to run away from that responsibility. You know, I think the more I'm maturing in my faith, the more responsibility I'm taking over that relationship and over these ideals, you know. And to some people, especially, you know, listeners who grew up with an unhealthy relationship to God or or in a who experiencing a lot of church hurt, you can have this kind of I don't know, almost like a traumatic response or whatever you want to call it, uh, towards that relationship. You know, some damage, some scar tissue in there, you know. Um and so it you're not responsible for what happened, but you're responsible for how you respond to what happened. And I think sometimes we have to if we're gonna grow up if we're going to grow up as Christians, if we're going to grow up in church, I think we do have to take responsibility for, well, what, like, what does this mean? You know, my, my, uh, uh, you know, our, um, one of our lead pastors, um, Austin this weekend, he said, I think sometimes when I'm most unhealthy, I say my father judges me, but when I'm more secure, I think, how how blessed am I to have the judge be my father? And it's just that little that little switch that I feel like pulls you right from anxiety into security. You know, if you can battle with the idea of trustworthiness, if you can battle with the idea of father and being led and you know, I mean we could talk about this for hours, but but yeah, it's yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's, you know, I've, I've, I've used, I think it's Psalm 139 that I've used with different groups before, because I think you, you read that. I think that's the one where, where David is saying, you go before me and behind me. You're, you're never away from me. I, where, if I go to the tallest mountains, deepest valleys, you're there all the time. You're never away from me. You know my every move. And I, it's interesting to sort of hear different people's response to that, because some find great comfort in that. And some hear that and think, oh, man, that's that's too much, uh, which I think speaks to what you're saying. And and, you know, we, we talk about these different views that we have of God. And a lot of times our view of God shifts or changes over time. And, you know, we've, you know, whether it's a loving father or angry judge or some might even say tyrant or Santa Claus type figure, whatever it is, kind of the image of God that we have uh, or or loving mother, uh, you know, in, in if some I think can can picture God and, and imagine and envision God better that way, that especially in our kind of history, um, most of our images of God tend to be male uh, or have male imagery attached to them. But I've always kind of typically thought about all of that primarily as a theological exercise. But I think what this has sort of helped me to think through is that there's there's other stuff going on that impacts how I come to Scripture, how I read Scripture, how I relate to God, and that the theological exploration is part of that, 
but but there's also all this other stuff going on that has a great impact i think on on how we view god and and how we connect to and and relate to him or her <laughs> mhm yeah and the same for the community you know like same for the community like if you're in the lgbtqa plus community even if you're in if whatever communities you're in like those relationships are going to be paralleled within those communities you know like you're going to have the same struggles with trustworthiness you're going to have the same struggles with vulnerability you're going to have the same struggles with anxiety or avoidant or mixture of the two you know so how you show up to those things are is so important you know you you got to do that work uh i i think about the um just the power the spiritual power that i uh have learned about in the african-american church in the you know late 19th early 20th century moving into you know the mid 20th century and the civil rights movement about there was there was legitimate lack of safety for them and yet they and they yet those some of those churches were some of the most powerful spiritually robust and strong entities in our country and i just and and so to me that really speaks to um you know the power of you know how that that kind of secure attachment to god so to speak can overpower even the most devastating and traumatic socio-cultural you know environments that we may find ourselves in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah 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 i grew up in one of those churches my grandpa's church and it was like you know i played guitar in his church and it was full-on like red carpets four-hour you know masses lunch somebody's cooking in the back my grandpa couldn't stop talking. I'm like, amen, man. Amen. God. <laughs> I'm me and my brother trying to play him off, you know. It's just, but it is. It's just like such like an a, award show or something. <laughs> I'm like, hey, and we pass the offer and play golly. Um, but it, 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 it's more than just like a place you go to worship. It's, it's like, it's, it's the, it's the image in your mind that you carry with you throughout the week that provides such a source of attachment that even in an insecure environment, you can still find attachment. And that's the thing that I feel like carries you through relationships functionally, you know, um, uh, emotionally vulnerable and secure, like it, even in those situations, you know, um, you can still yeah. find some, some security. And I think I think that's why it's so important for churches to be safe places, um, particularly I, I, for vulnerable populations. Exactly. Right, because I've had so many people tell me, especially over the last probably couple of years, as as we've kind of gone through different journeys, you know, just in in our church, I've had multiple people tell me there's no hurt like church hurt. Mm-hmm. And and it's I think different. that idea, yeah. And so, and I'm not saying this from personal experience. I'm just, you know, kind of relating what I've heard from others. But I think part of it is that idea that if you come to a place looking for security and, and experience um, exclusion and hurt, that, that that is just, that's, that's very 
damaging. And certainly we could say the same thing about parents and caregivers. You know, I'm not trying to discount that, but I'm just thinking from a spiritual perspective for those of us who are trying to cultivate those types of places in our spiritual community, uh, communities, just how important that is for people who are coming coming and seeking that out. And and that I think that's that's part of the work of everyone within that community to help foster that um, and to help foster a place of of safety where people do feel like they can get that image. I, I like that, that way that you said that Jude of, of giving people an image and a place for that kind of each Sunday that I do think that's part of the benefit of coming together and worshiping together as a community that we can then kind of hopefully hold on to that as we go through whatever it is that we go through in our week. Amen. Hmm. Yeah. Well, there's a lot more that we could explore there, but, um, any any closing thoughts that either of you have that, that maybe we didn't get to or you want to throw in there before we before we close out for today? Well, I'll give Jude the, the last word, but I, I do want to suggest, and Warren, we, we had a conversation about this a few days, a couple of days ago, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big advocate for universal counseling and psychotherapy that uh, I, I, I feel like there is a... Uh, an underappreciation for, for who can benefit from counseling and psychotherapy. And um, I actually believe that literally every single person on the face of the earth could benefit from it at one point or another. And I think that some of the um, myths and stereotypes just simply aren't applicable. Like for instance, you don't have to go to psychotherapy every week. You don't even have to go regularly, but, uh, and it doesn't need to be because you have some major problem that you can't handle on your own. Um, that sometimes counseling and psychotherapy is really about helping broaden your perspective of your own life and, and allowing you the opportunity to see options and, and insights into yourself that you wouldn't have already seen. Does that, you know, mean that you wouldn't, that you can't function without that? No, you can probably function, but it's about helping you function more mindfully and intentionally and being able to address things, um, you know, in a, in a healthier way. Um, you know, the metaphor I use a lot is like going to the dentist. Uh, I, I go get my teeth cleaned twice a year, whether I'm having problems with my teeth or not, you know, and if I wait until I have, I need a root canal or I have a cavity or I get gum disease, well, that could be very problematic. On the other hand, if I'm going twice a year, I get things cleaned out, I feel better, and if there is a problem, they might be able to catch it before it becomes really serious. And I think counseling and psychotherapy is the exact same way, and so I encourage everyone to seek it out, at least at some point in their life. Hmm. So that's that's my final thought on the matter. Jude? Yeah, man, I... I'd, I'd add to that and say, you know, if you're listening to this and you're thinking I'm avoiding attachment or I'm anxiously attached or whatever. Um, look, man, there's hope. Like you can still work. You can still do the work to become more securely attached. And, and even when you are, you still have to do the work to remain securely attached. So like my suggestion would be don't get in a relationship with secure attachment. Don't chase that. Get in a relationship with the work. Like build a relationship with like commit to persistently forever growing towards that. 
you know, like you got to fall. And my grandpa would say, like, you got to go find it in the dirt. Like you got to get out there and just keep digging and working and getting your hands dirty. And I think if you're committed to that, then you'll reap the benefits of it. You know, Um, if you get into a relationship with security and fight for it, you're probably only going to make yourself more anxious. You know, so like commit to the work, not the outcome. It's about the destination. It's about the journey, not the destination. Not the destination. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. I appreciate those those thoughts. I appreciate both of y'all joining us for this this conversation. I've enjoyed it, and for those listening, I uh, hope hope you've enjoyed and, and got something out of the conversation. And as I said, we'll post we'll try to post some resources in the notes to this episode that have some where you can go and read more about the attachment styles. And if anybody wants more information on our church, you can check us out online on YouTube or thevinetemple.com. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with another episode.